If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Stonewall Jackson. In the last episode, we learned that Jackson is a deeply religious man whose beliefs in his cause inspired those men around him to fight ferociously and win a lot. We learned that his ancestors were likely criminals. And we got a different perspective on Abraham Lincoln and how one might be able to see this revered figure of American history as a blossoming monarch and dictator. In this episode, Jackson has a few additional comments about Lincoln. He'll address some of his quirks, like eating lemons, riding with his hand in the air, and then we'll finish with Order 191 and the bloodiest battle in American history. Here we go. So, from the South's perspective, Lincoln looks like he is out of control. Like, he's totally ignoring the Constitution, totally ignoring states' rights, uh, totally ignoring everything. I mean, just doing whatever and, he wants. Yes, sir. He's becoming a dictator or a monarch with absolute power. He's destroyed over 300 northern presses or put them out of business for disagreeing with his war measures. Are you talking and, about newspapers? Yes, sir. I am talking about newspapers. If they come out, especially those newspapers that were controlled by the Copperheads, according to them, what we know as peace Democrats that wanted to sue for peace in the South, become the reasonable thing. Sir, when we seceded, did we ever forecast any intentions of invading the North? Did we forecast anything of overthrowing the Union government? No, sir. I just wanted to be left alone to go about and be self-governing, just as we'd agreed to in the Constitution. The South never said, okay, we're going to secede, and you know now we're going to take over uh, Maryland. Never. Right. Who called for a national army to invade the South? Lincoln. Who blockaded Southern ports in act of war? Abraham Lincoln. So, so. But the, the travesties just continue. Let me tell you about Congressman Blankham from Ohio. Congressman Vallandigham was one of the leading peace Democrats or copperheads, if you're northern sympathizer. Lincoln and his men went out and gerrymandered his congressional district so he could not be reelected to Congress. But this did not stop this gallant gentleman. He ran for governor in, in Ohio and continued to speak out against Lincoln's degradations to try to seek peace with the South. You know what Mr. Lincoln's henchmen did? They went out to Ohio and put a black bag over his head, brought him down to the border of Tennessee, and turned him over to our Confederate troops. Well, now, he was no more a Confederate than Lincoln was. I understand that our troops helped him immigrate to Canada, which he's going to probably stay there throughout the war because his life has been threatened that he better not return. This is your Mr. Lincoln. Sir, upon Virginia's second vote for secession, it was approved, and after the voters approved it, my duty was clear. I was no longer a citizen of the United States, but I was a citizen of Virginia, and to her I owed my loyalty to fight against this blossoming dictator. I'm sorry I went on such a diatribe. You're, what you're saying makes complete sense. If I'm in the South and we are 
so basically financing everything in the north, and then Lincoln is changing the rules of the game. This all makes sense. This is why wars are fought, not because one side is right and one side is wrong, but because both sides think they're right. But I do have a very difficult question for you. This is a really tough one, I think. And that is, this is probably going to surprise you. In our time, there have been 40, 50 presidents. I can't remember the exact number. If you take a consensus of the North and the South states and have them vote for who was the best president ever, it's almost a perfect consensus from the North and the South that Lincoln was number one and Washington was number two. If he was such a rule breaker and, and ignored the Constitution and states' rights, like, what do you have to say about that? One, it's very surprising. But two, I have a sense of gloom that you may be predicting the future of this outcome. I can only answer that in reflection of what I've seen in past histories. Who writes the history books, Mr. Dean? That's true. The winners. The victors. Yeah. I will tell you this, though. It doesn't turn out the way that you think that it will. I mean, maybe some of it, but you'd be surprised if you saw what happened next. But you're absolutely right. The victors write the history books. Gosh, that is interesting. I totally can see what you're saying, too, about the the perspective from the South. It, it, it really is. doesn't make all the sense in the world. Mr. Dean, it is your interview, and I want to make sure that you ask any of the questions you do. But I think there is one other major issue that I want to make sure we get to at some time. And that's my personal relationship with this issue of slavery. Please. Yes, I would love to hear that. We've touched briefly on it with the Sunday school. But anyhow, I, I have studied this issue for most of my life because of the relationships. I've already mentioned that I consider myself a poor public speaker. Although I did try to overcome that, I remember right after becoming a deacon in the Presbyterian Church, it was one of my duties to lead public prayer. My pastor, Dr. William White, had called upon me one Sunday to lead prayer. And to say the least, it was most embarrassing to myself and to Dr. White as I stumbled through it, being nervous and self-conscious. Well, he didn't call on me for several Sundays later, and I finally asked question about him because it was my duty that I should do it. And he made mention to me, he said, Major Jackson, that was my rank at the time, was being teacher at VMI. He said, a man who speaks for the Lord is better than 10 who can't. Well, I immediately went down and enrolled in the Franklin Literary Society. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but basically it'd be a local club that once a week, usually Friday evenings, you'd get it together and you would take whatever the subject was assigned from the last week and you would debate on one side or the other. And I attended that for several years, but I never got over the feeling that I was not much of a public speaker. And so, therefore, I did not advocate publicly or get involved in, in, in the organizations that were trying to bring about the end of slavery there. But I simply dealt with it on a personal and spiritual level. The Bible does not advocate for slavery. Certain interpretations point out examples of ending it personally, as we did with Albert, or spiritually, as I'll discuss with my other family members. The Bible simply treats slavery as a human condition of the sinful world and offers spiritual guidance 
or in this action with his institution. I do not know why our great and sovereign Lord has permitted the institution of slavery to exist throughout the ages. There are many references of it in the scriptures. I do know that these enslaved are children of God and as such should be treated as such. And I've used the following verses to guide my relationship with these peoples. The primary one is Paul's letter to Philemon. It's a short letter, but Paul is writing Philemon about Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave and apparently had stole some valuables or money from Philemon. He had listened to Paul's preaching and actually had become to be a, a, a volunteer servant to Paul while he was imprisoned by the Romans for teaching God's word. And in this letter to Philemon, Paul writes to Philemon that he's sending this runaway slave Onesimus back to Philemon. And he expected Philemon to accept him as a brother in Christ, no longer a slave, but better than a slave, a brother in Christ. And he even told Philemon that Paul would pay any debt to Onesimus owed. So again, in my personal life and with my relationship with my family servants, once they are baptized into Christ, they are no longer a slave. They are my brother or sister in Christ. I, I would call you to Galatians 2, chapter 3, 26 through chapter 4, verse 7. And I'm not going to read this, but I'm just going to paraphrase. You can go back later and see whether I accurately represented the verses. But basically, for all baptized into Christ, there's not Jew or Gentile, slave or free. You are in Christ, according to his promise. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. God has made you an heir. I think Timothy also has something to say, and I'm going to paraphrase. The law is not made for the righteous, but for the lawless, the unholy, the murderers, the whoremongers, the man-stealers. And there in that verse, man-stealers could be considered to be slave traders. Yeah. Mr. Dean, with the Lord's commendation of the slave traders in Timothy's letter, it's been my belief from my late adolescence that slavery could, should come to an end. General Lee is in agreement on that verse. The servant family at the mills, Uncle Robinson, Aunt Celia, and the rest were just as much my family as my, my blood, blood relations. But let's talk about my servant family, since they're on my tax rolls as slaves. The first would be Alpert. I met Alpert through that Black Sunday School class. And this is the verse that guided me when dealing with Alpert. It's First Corinthians 7, 20 through 22. Every man should abide in his calling when called. If slave, serve as a slave. If free, remain free. But if a slave, if you can be free, then do it. Called in the Lord as a servant, you are the Lord's freedman. Called in the Lord as the freeman, you are the Lord's slave. Albert came to me and said, Master Major, would you purchase me and allow me to work, to earn money, to, to buy my freedom? I agreed. I look at it as I gave Albert a loan to be able to purchase freedom. He has worked at the Lexington Hotel and VMI since this arrangement happened just prior to my second marriage of my second wife. Similarly, Amy was another one of my black Sunday school students. 
Amy came to me and asked me to purchase her and allow her to come into my, my, my second wife's family. And I said, Amy, we don't even have a home yet. At that particular time, I was still living in the Lexington Hotel with my second wife. But she said, well, my, my owners are deeply in debt, and I'm about ready to be sold, and I do want to make sure that I live in a Christian family. So I purchased Amy, and I found her a Christian home to work in until such time as Anna and I purchased our first home. And Amy, being rather elderly, has come into the home and has become part of the family as and serves as our cook. Now, the next three, Hetty and her teenage sons, George and Cyrus, came to us from Marianna's father, Dr. Robert Hall Morrison. When Anna was having trouble with the pregnancy of our first daughter, little Miss Graham, who unfortunately died six weeks after childbirth, he sent Hetty, which had been Marianna's nursemaid all throughout her childhood, up to us with her two teenage sons, George and Cyrus. After the death of, of our Mary Graham, Dr. Robert Hall Morrison said that Hetty and the two teenagers should remain part of our family. Now, it's been reported by those people in northern presses that I'm just a slave master. I immediately went out and bought 20 acres of land so that I could put my slaves to work. Sir, I went out and purchased that 20 acres of land to raise wheat and oats so that I could help feed our growing family. The last servant family member that is on my rolls is little Miss Emma. As the deacon of the Presbyterian Church, of course, I'm required to respond to widows and such. And I had an elderly widow come to me after church one Sunday morning and asked me to visit her that later that afternoon. She was well into her 90s, and when I got to her home, she said, Major Jackson, you know that I'm not long for this world. I have little Miss Emma here, and I'm concerned for her future. Little Miss Emma would be what, you, sir, you would call a slow child. And this widow was concerned that somebody may abuse the girl. So I gave little Miss Emma a home. It took us almost two years to teach her the child's catechism. And after, after she would recite each verse, she had this lovely little gesture of doing a curtsy. Sir, I can tell you that I'm not fighting to preserve slavery, but only because my home state was invaded. And for my state to have the same rights of government by the will of its people, just as it was agreed to when Virginia adopted the Constitution to join the Union, slavery's got to come to an end. But it must be by the consent of the people with preparation for the employment and education of our Negro brethren to render slavery asunder by the will of the sword will only cause us long-lasting detrimental effects for both black and white citizens. Mm. The South and Virginia must end slavery, but they must end it on their own terms, just as all the northern states have done. If we look back at history, there have been two methods of injuring slavery that I've run across. The first would be some form of manumissions, that is, setting a time some 10 or 15 years out distance that would allow for the transition of socialization, education, and contracting of labor. The second that I've seen would be through government remuneration, and that's where the government would compensate the slave owner for the value of his slave force, so to provide money 
to these planters or whoever to have cash to start payments for labor. This too would be need to be done over a transition of the economy. But I have a feeling that this great and terrible war has thrust upon us something that's going to cause us much problems in the future. Yeah, you're kind of at that point of no return. It's somebody's going to win. And, you know, this is going to be resolved at some point. You know, you continue to make one interesting point after the other, and you've brought one up that I want to ask. I was wondering how the slaves that, that you owned, how they became part of your what you're calling your family. And it, I've never heard of any situation where a slave went to somebody and said, will you buy me? But it just shows what kind of person you were because they obviously knew you were a good Christian and they knew that they would be safe with you and you would treat them like people. And in fact, you referred to them as your brothers and sisters. And I've heard you say that many times. Well, a few days ago, sir, I spoke with abolitionist John Brown. And I know that you played some role in being there for his execution. And I'd like to hear a little bit about that. But I got to tell you, when I listen to John Brown and I hear him talk about black people as his brothers and sisters, and then I hear you talk about them as brothers and sisters, I feel like I'm listening to the same person. He's very religious. He sees them as humans. He believes that they are his brothers and sisters under Christ, as you do. But you were at his execution. What are your thoughts about John Brown? And what happened in that situation? What was your involvement there? Sir, my involvement with John Brown was the fact that he had been convicted of treason and sentenced to be hung. It was feared that there was going to be a civil uprising around that. So the VMI, Colonel Smith, got orders to send our cadets there to act as security for his execution. Major Gillum was in charge overall. I was aboard the Major Gillum at the time, and I was in charge of the artillery that we took up. We surrounded the grounds upon where his hanging would be taken. Of course, I didn't personally talk with John Brown, but I was aware of what his statements were, followed the trial exclusively. I will not be his judge. Our great Lord and Savior will be the judge. I do question his interpretation of Scripture. Throughout the Bible, we see religious zealots. Christ condemned the Pharisees as brooders and vipers, and they were very religious. But in my mind, if you read the Scriptures, they are obviously on the wrong side, even though their outward motivation would make them appear that uh, they were godly people and trying to do all their actions for the glory of God. I will say this is a distinction before between John Brown's and me. John Brown acted outside of the authority of government. He acted individually in the deaths that he caused, not only out in Lawrence, Kansas, but look at who the first man that his group killed in Harpers Ferry in that invasion. It was a freed black man working for the B&O Railroad. So, so again, I'll let the Lord sort out. My actions have been under the direction and the support of our particular, the government of Virginia and the Confederate government. We are engaged in the war because we were invaded 
And as I've stated before, I'm fighting against the unconstitutional act that Lincoln has created. I'm fighting for us to be able to have self-government. And so the deaths that may have occurred at the direction of my directing troops have been at least under formal government that was sanctioned, not an individual vendetta to, to cause trouble. Okay, I understand. So it was the, when you were responsible for, at the execution of John Brown, you were responsible for artillery there. Is that where you first spent time with General Lee? No, sir. I never saw General Lee there at all. I know that General Lee was responsible at that time. He'd been Colonel Lee, that he and Jeb Stuart was responsible for capturing John Brown at the end of the raid. No, my first uh, recollection of General Lee was the brief moments in during the Mexican War. I don't know whether we have discussed that. I think we did briefly that it was during the Mexican War that I learned the value of having to have hard training of militia and volunteers. I also mentioned learning about flanking movements there firsthand. And General Lee, being Captain Lee at the time, served on, on General Scott's staff. And it was just the few times that I ran into Captain Lee, he was out scouting these flanking movements. I remember at the Battle of Contreras, he found the route by which our army would outflank the Mexican general there, Santa Ana, and get in his rear and cause him to flee. And one of the most outstanding flanking movements happening at the Battle of Chapultepec, their fortress that some people compared to being their West Point. They had set up their defensiveness, expecting that the Petrical, which basically was a lava field, feeling that it was impassable, that was the swamps. Well, Captain Lee found a route with his engineers and carved a route through that glassy formation of volcanic glass, and we outflanked there that really brought a swift conclusion to the Mexican War. So that was my first association with Captain Lee. My first relationship with General Lee here during the Civil War was after he resigned his commission, after he had been offered to be the commander of the Northern Forces. He resigned and said he could not draw his sword against his home state. I think he was observing what Lincoln was doing as well. And so he came down, and after briefly serving west of the Alleghenies, in some fights there, he went back and was, became advisor to uh, President Jefferson Davis. And he was corresponding with me while I was under the command of Joseph E. Johnson. Now, he was not subverting Joseph Johnson. In the line of command, General Johnson was my immediate supervisor. But at the time, I was detached up into Shenandoah Valley. And he was making sure that I was aware of what McClellan was doing on the peninsula and of, of President Davis's desire and his desire to make sure I understood my responsibilities to keep those troops tied up in the valley to keep them from going down to the peninsula. So we corresponded there. And of course, upon General Johnson being wounded early on, I believe in the Battle of Fair Oaks, then General Lee now becomes my direct commanding officer. What kind of man is General Lee? He's a good Christian man, sir. I have all the faith in the world in him. We couldn't ask for a much better general than General Lee. We do have occasionally some 
different points of view. I could think of nobody better to command this army of Virginia. Many historians will say that you are the greatest general that the U.S. has ever seen, even above the league. What is your response to that? All things get blown out of proportion. I simply will praise my heavenly father that he has given me through his providence, these brave men that has allowed us to accomplish things for our country. I believe that legends are overblown and therefore I would not take countenance of that myself. Well, you're definitely right. Sometimes these legends get a little bit out of control. In our time, everybody believes that you are six foot eight and 310 pounds of solid muscle. <laughs> no, I'm about five foot eight and probably weigh about 160, 70 pounds. I have lost weight during the war, I can assure you that. You may have also heard of that I'm somewhat of a, a, a weird bird, so to speak. I have unusual tendencies. I have heard of that. I heard that you have some that you some have some fascination with lemons. Well, sir, let me start where some of those exaggerations or misunderstandings came from. As an orphan, I did not have a clear path. I wasn't going to inherit anything. So one of my hopes was to get a formal college education. Fortunately, when I was serving as a constable when I was 17 years old in Lewis County, Virginia, there came the opportunity from Congressman Hayes. He sent letters to the area that he was going to have to make a recommendation for an appointment to West Point. Well, this was my chance to try to get a college education. So I studied very hard for the next two weeks. And you can imagine my disappointment when I came in second to one Gordon Butcher, the county clerk who had more education than I, and he went off to West Point, but he came back after only one day and said he didn't like it, wasn't going to return. And I was encouraged to seek to be his replacement. So I scurried about the countryside getting letters of introduction and, and recommendation. And uh, I had to ride to a, what we call in Virginia, golly washer of a rainstorm to catch a stage. Then on to the steam locomotives from Cumberland, Maryland to go into Washington and convinced Congressman Hayes to be, let me be Butcher's replacement. Well, upon arriving at, at West Point, I did not make much of a favorable impression upon my peers there, arriving in my muddy Virginia Holmes bun and an old slouch hat and all my worldly possession and two stained saddlebags. And who would meet me at the barracks door was good, upstanding Southern gentlemen dressed in their finery, such as A.P. Hill, George Pickett, Dadbury Murray. And I must tell you, sir, they poked a little fun at this old hillbilly. You know, I didn't make much of a favorable impression upon my instructors either. There in 1842, there had been 133 of us that had, had been invited to come take the formal entrance exam. 123 of us showed up. 111 of us was added to the roster. And I'm here to tell you, sir, I was 111th. I was last in the class. Everything goes by rank at West Point. In fact, I'm not even sure I passed my entrance exam. I later found out that West Point has a soft spot for orphans and I'll often give them a chance and make an exception. But I can tell you, I'm proud that four years later, when the 59 of that 111 graduated, I graduated 17th in my class. Anyway, 
later on in expansion here during the war, those gentlemen, specifically A.P. Hill and Dadbury and Murray, have become subordinates of mine. And I think they chafe a little bit that they have to serve under this old hillbilly. If you get to your concern about lemons, sir, I have, I took a trip with my brother when I was 12 or 13. We were trying to come up with a way that we could be landed gentry ourselves. We had found out that our maternal uncle, Alfred Neal, had helped purchase the island that he had in the Ohio River by cutting and selling firewood to the steamships there. So we borrowed an old crest-cut saw and a couple of axes and an old beat-up canoe, and we floated down the Ohio River to find our own island. Well, they didn't find one until we got to the Mississippi River. We started to cut and sell firewood, but we both ended up with malaria and decided to come home. My brother would die two years later of complications from this disease and, and tuberculosis. And I have suffered from a flashback from this disease throughout my life. But one of the things that I've always had a problem with is what, I, what we call dyspepsia, upset stomach. And I find it hard to eat most commonly made foods, especially they contain grease. But I've never, ever had a problem with eating fruits. There, there's two exaggerations that I've seen in the papers come from this, so I'll do them both simultaneously. It was on our march from, from in the Harper's Ferry area when Joseph Johnson had ordered me to march through the mountains to come down and join him. This was to be prior to the first Manassas there. And we'd been marching throughout the night, and we were, came up through a mountain pass, and I hadn't eaten anything that day. Our uh, quartermaster, Major Harmon, came up, and he had been lucky enough to find some lemons from someplace. And so he offered me some. Well, again, fresh fruit had never bothered my indigestion at all. So there I am, setting off in, a, in the fence rails in the corner of the field, relishing this lemon. When Dad, Barry, and Mary, one of his subordinates, came up and saw me there by myself, we had not posted Central's just exactly yet. And so two things came out of that because, you know, we always had newspaper reporters around trying to gain information. And unfortunately, Dad, Barry, and Mary never understood that as a leader, he should keep his mouth shut. You know, so he was always being quoted. And so he's the one that said yes, that I had a fetish for lemons. I assure you, I was attacking that lemon that night. But, you know, my favorite fruit is peaches. Oh. But, you know, the lemons have another great quality. You know, when you're out in the field for so long, you, you get that feel like your mouth is full of cotton. Now, I can tell you, you eat a fresh lemon, rind and all, and your teeth will be as clean as if you had been to the dentist to take care of them. My dentist tells me I better not do it too often. I'll eat all the enamel off my teeth. But another one of Mary Murray's exaggerations was about me having my hand in the air. Yeah, that what is the deal out. with that? I heard that you, somebody said that you hold your hand in the air so that you can, so that the blood will rush down through your body to the other side or something? Yes, well, unfortunately, I made an offhand remark to Dad Barry Murray that would be right after the Battle of Manassas. During that battle, I had my hands in the air, sir, nine out of ten times my hands in the air is in supplication to my Lord in open prayer, even during battle. And that was exactly, I was praying for his blessings when I ordered the wheeling charge down Henry House Hill. And a spent shell or a, a P-51 
piece of shrapnel from a cannonball almost tore off the center finger of my left hand. Why I'd had it taken care of and bandaged up, and I don't know if you've ever hit your thumb with a hammer, sir, but if you have, you know that if you hang it down to your side, it'll clump like crazy. Well, I had my hand in the air when Dad Murray came up beside me, probably colonel at the time, and questioned just why I had my hand in the air. Well, it was obviously the finger was bandaged. So I made some offhanded remark about letting the blood drain back down into my other side. And again, that got repainted and made newspapers. So uh, Then it became news. Isn't that the way that it works? Yes, sir. So now, I did have some other things that I did. You know, I would leave, I would sleep in wet shirts at night. It's called water treatment. People seem to think these things are strange, but I assure you that, that with these flare-ups of malaria and my eyes, my, I had terrible burning eyes at times. I read all the latest medical journals that I could find coming out of the Philadelphia Medical Society. And I don't know whether they were accurate or not, but I figured they knew more about Kanai, and so I would try these remedies. You know, some have worked, and some has not have been successful. Have you ever ignored an order? You're trying to get me in trouble, General Lee, aren't you? Well, he'll never sir, hear this. <laughs> so go ahead. Sir, I have, ne I have never purposely, absolutely dis disobeyed an order. I have sometimes interpreted orders that may have been different than what was attempted, or I may have, based upon the conditions of the time, changed the meaning of the order. I tried to fill the order to its intended belief, if not to the letter. The example, again, was like that first battle, Henry House Hill, or Manassas that we was talking about. My order was go directly to the Stone Bridge in support of General Cox. As I got into the area, I realized that the battle was much further to the left, and I took it upon myself to choose a different position to locate my troops, which in that instant ended up being the correct decision. I am not an AP Hill, and I would make reference to that because I'm thinking about trying to follow the orders of seven days' battles. I had ridden over 100 miles and had only three hours sleep in 48 hours in coordinating to bringing my my division there down to start joining in on the Seven Days Battle. And the whole thing was going to be a giant wheeling movement that come around the northern flank of McClellan on the peninsula. I had agreed that I would, the kickoff time was to be 3 a.m. in the morning on the, oh, I don't know. It seems to me it was somewhere in September the 26th there of 62. And the whole idea was I was supposed to start the flanking before A.P. Hill would kick off and start pushing the troops. Well, because of our fatigue condition, because of tremendous downpour of rains, the flooding of roads and the washing out of bridges and enemy cutting a betas to block a thing. We were late. I didn't arrive until 4.30. I think it was the 27th of September on the afternoon, 4.30. So I'm running 13 hours late. Of course, I had sent word ahead to to the person I was supposed to meet as a coordinator to kick this thing off. But O.A.P. Hill, he is a gallant fighter, but sometimes he doesn't know how to follow orders. He had got tired of waiting and kicked off the battle before my men were in position. Had I been General Lee, I would have relieved him of command and court-martialed him. But uh, 
Well, that's another story. But so to answer your question, I've never intentionally disobeyed an order. I may have, have looked at and interpreted it in my favor or changed it based upon the battlefield conditions. Yeah, that makes sense. I've got three questions left for you. First of all, and remember, you can speak freely because the only people who are going to hear this are the people in my time, not in your time. I spoke with Jefferson Davis, President Jefferson Davis, a while back ago. Had a very interesting conversation with him. He had a lot of interesting things to say for sure. How do you feel about him as a leader? I've only had limited contact with Mr. Davis. The one impression I had is that he was somewhat excitable. The one time that I personally had a conversation with him was directly after the Battle of First Manassas. I had just come out of the, uh, the medical tent where Dr. McGuire had splinted up my finger. He was all excited. He thought that we had lost the Battle of Manassas, First Manassas there, when I informed him that, no, we had a victory, and that if he'd give me 10,000 troops, I'd march on Washington and take it over. Well, he seemed to ignore me there. That was the only personal contact I had with man. I, I've seen him on the battlefield, or at least in garrison, a time or two, and acknowledged each other. I don't have time to concern myself too much with Mr. Davis. I work more with General Lee. I mean, I realized that Jefferson Davis did have some qualifications, having been served at the National Government. I believe he had been the Secretary of Defense at one time, or not Defense, Secretary of War for the United States government at one time. So... That's he, about all. I think that he served in all positions. I think he was in the Senate and the Congress. I think he served in everything. The only thing that he wasn't one was president of the, of the North. Yes, but I think his qualifications of being the Secretary of War probably made the suited to, to serve our needs more yeah, than that anything. That makes a lot of sense. Second question. You were asked at one point to teach at the, what is it, the Virginia Military Institute. Yes, sir. And as I read a little bit about your history, that section of your life is confusing to me. Like, are you a good teacher? Because that seems like a weird place to put you. You seem like you belong on the battlefield, leading people. Well, sir, let me go back and refer to that period of my life. Basically, that followed the Mexican War. And it was during the Mexican War, sir, you talk about my religious fervor, that it was... During my service with Captain Francis Taylor, which later became Colonel Taylor, I became a member of his artillery unit right after being commissioned as a second lieutenant in artillery. Upon my graduation from West Point, went to the Mexican War. We talked about those battles briefly. While I was there, I did explore the Catholic Church. I had an interview, two interviews with the Archbishop of Mexico City. And while there are many good Christians, I'm sure the Catholic faith, I found that faith to be too cumbersome for me with too much hierarchy in there. Upon returning from the Mexican War, I was baptized by an Episcopal minister at Fort Hamilton. But again, I have also found that the Episcopal faith seemed to be not to have as close a personal relationship with my Lord. But anyway, I got assigned after coming back to go down to the Seminole areas of Florida. And during that time, I find that, found that the advancement in the peacetime army was not going to be very conducive. I mean, while I've had the rank of brevet major, I was still only being paid at the level of first lieutenant. 
And it was going to be several years before any advancement in pay could come about. Well, fortunately, my great heavenly father shined his blessings upon me, and I received a letter from Colonel Smith, uh, the superintendent of Virginia Military Institute there at Lexington, Kentucky, offering me a position as the professor of natural and artificial philosophy. Now, that sounds a little bit vague. I think that, that you would understand the term physics a little bit more. It would be the teaching of all the sciences that did not fall under the disciplines of biography or chemistry. I was also asked to teach artillery. I can assure you, sir, that I'm much more adept at teaching artillery than I was at sciences. I found myself right. hard-pressed to keep ahead of my students. There were seven, several nicknames that I know the students there brought up, you know, Tom Fool, Old Jack, uh, several, several names of derision. So I would say I was probably a good artillery instructor. I probably had better, they've been better people to put in the science majors. But that is a unique time in my life there at VMI. It was the first time that I became an, an adult member of the community. Uh, that's where I became a member of the Presbyterian Church and a deacon there. That's how I came to, to marry my first wife. Dr. George Junkin, a Presbyterian minister, was serving as the president of Washington College. And I don't know if you know the layout there at Lexington or not, Mr. Dean, but Washington College and, and, and Virginia Military Institute occupies the same ridge just west of, of the town of Lexington. So their campuses kind of abut each other. So after Sunday morning services, Dr. Junkin and I would often be walking together, continuing our theological discourse. And often he would invite me into his home for Sunday dinner. Well, I became intimate with his family at that time. They were two daughters, Margaret and Eleanor, and the younger brother, George. Eleanor would eventually join me to be to be one of the teachers in the Black Sunday School class. And Eleanor and I would be married there in, in 53. Unfortunately, I would lose my wife in childbirth some 18 months later. There's a humorous story there. During our engagement, things were a bit rough. Her older sister was against her being married. I guess she just really felt that she was going to lose her sister. And so the engagement was broken off. Eleanor thought that she was causing her sister too much embarrassment. You know, kind of the unformal custom of the time was, was that the older sister should be married before the younger. And maybe that was a part of it. But after intercessions of, of Isabella Hill, a dear friend of mine, by the way, her husband, D.H. Hill, that I'd served in the Mexican War, was the one who had recommended to Colonel Smith to invite me to come there to be a member of the faculty. Well, I went to her, Isabella, and Isabella spoke with Eleanor. Anyhow, the engagement was back on. and uh, But Eleanor, to prevent the embarrassment of her sister, swore me to secrecy about the engagement. And so being true to my word, I didn't even let my sister Laura know about it. So this caused a rift between my sister and I for a while. Anyhow, the humorous part about it was when Eleanor and I got married, we went on our honeymoon and her sister Maggie went along with us. That seemed strange to some people, but basically the custom of the time, 
the female often took another female along with them on a honeymoon to help them get into all those accoutrements that they wear. After the death of my first wife and child, I became depressed and I took leave and I took that trip to Europe and thank God that the, the Lord opened my eyes that I should stop being selfish, that he had given a home in his heavenly mansion to my wife and child and I should get on with life. And so I vowed to be a family man again. And so I had met Isabel Hill's sisters, Eugenia and Marianna Morrison, when they had visited her in Lexington. I had acted as a escort for the ladies of Zays in town. So when I came back, I went down to, took leave over Christmas break in December of 56, and went down and asked Dr. Robert Holm Morrison, the Presbyterian minister, who was the founder and first president of Davidson College, to court his daughter. Well, to make a long story short, Marianna and I were married July 16th, 1857. It was a hectic day. It was commencement day at Davidson College. And of course, Dr. Morrison attended those commencement ceremonies that morning. Our marriage ceremony was to take place at three o'clock in the afternoon. So we scurried back to the cottage there, and at one o'clock, my wife's trousseau had not yet arrived, but it shortly arrived, and thank God it fit. But about 15 minutes before the ceremony, one of my grooms came up to me and said, sir, the judge has not signed the marriage license. So we found a quick horse for him to go gallop out around and acquire that signature. So all went well, and we got married. But we did not take her sister Eugenia's with us on that, that honeymoon. Now, those were some of the more pleasant memories and also the more sorrowful ones there. I'm sorry I got off on that distant tangent. No, I'm, I, that actually, that was the third thing I was going to ask you because your life has been difficult these last few years. And I know that you had a very close relationship with your wife and it had to be really tough. So did they come back with the marriage license right, right away? They got back there in time. But it, it, we may not have kicked off the nodules exactly at 3 o'clock, but it was very close. I know <laughs> one thing. The horse was swathy was sweat when the groomsmen got back. Oh, geez. Well, I, I am so thankful for your time today. And I just feel like I'm so much, I understand so much more clearly who you are and what your position was. And it actually makes a lot of sense what you've said. I want to congratulate you. I understand that, that you had a, that you baptized your daughter yesterday. Is that right? Yes. I've been, again, the Lord has blessed me that the last nine days, my wife has been able to visit me with my baby daughter, Julia. She was five months old yesterday and we had her baptized. Well, that's, that is certainly a gift. Well, thank you again for your time. Is there anything else that, that you'd like to add? Let me ask you one more quick question, if I can. Who was your biggest military adversary? Who was the strongest person you fought? No, gee, that would be hard pressed for me to say. Quite frankly, the Union has been, been fumbling for a real leader. There's no doubt that little Mac McClellan was their best organizer. You know that McClellan graduated number one in my class at 46, don't you? Wow. Okay. George Pickett was the last. A.P. Hill was in my class, but wouldn't graduate till the next year. He was ill his, what would have been our senior year with an unmentionable disease and didn't graduate till the next year. But Mac graduated number one 
And he uh, he obviously brought a formidable task to the field. He should have utterly defeated us at Antietam. Since we brought up Mac, let's talk about Antietam. After all, Antietam was the bloodiest battle of the Civil War. Today. Yeah, go ahead. So in bringing to that, I got to back up a little bit and set it up. After the Seventh Day's battle, it was obvious that McClellan did not want any more of General Lee on the peninsula. But uh, those armies that I had disorganized, the three separate armies, Banks, Shields, and Fremont, up here in the valley, when I had left, the, those units were scattered and disintegrated. Well, Mr. Lincoln had brought out a Western general by the name of Pope and reorganized them. His intent was to send Pope down south again across the Rappahannock to come help McClellan by hitting us in the rear, which was McClellan's plan initially all along. But again, while McClellan was a great organizer, he was a poor battlefield commander. And so General Lee had basically made me a corps commander at this time. The promotion and the designation would become later. He attached A.P. Hill's division to mine, and we moved north to stop Pope's advancement coming down at Cedar Mountain. Well, then the second battle of Manassas was in in turn, shortly after that, General Lee explained to us that if McClellan's army and Pope's army would get together, then we would be so overmatched in numbers of artillery and men that we couldn't possibly hope to survive. So I did about a 70-mile end-around flanking movement to come in behind the Pope's army at the Bristow Station at Manassas Junction, cutting his lines of supply and communications. And that ensued then the Second Battle of Manassas. Basically, my forces occupied what had been the Union position during the First Battle of Manassas, and I was fortunate enough to find a railroad cut there that we positioned. And, well, for three days, my, my corps held out. It got so desperate there on the second and third day at certain times that part of my units had run out of ammunition were throwing rocks at the enemy. But General Lee and Longstreet did get up on the third day and did a flanking movement. Now, we were disappointed that we were not able to capture and completely eliminate that army because of the timing of the battle and the lateness of the day. They did escape back into the fortifications of Washington. Well, it was this time that General Lee got us together for a council of war. And he said, gentlemen, look, you know, we started this war out to be defensive. But obviously, the resources that the northern folks have, along with not only personnel, but their manufacturing ability, we can no longer have this. Our best chance of bringing this war to conclusion is to invade the north. Basically, they had, there were some five objectives to us invading the north. Basically, the, one of the first things was give Virginia farmers a chance to do the harvest so that we'd have something to eat the next year. Ah. You know, I once said if the valley is lost, then this war is lost because the Shenandoah Valley and other northern parts of Virginia was a breadbasket for our eastern forces. The second reason we're going north was to try to attract the diplomatic recognition of England and France. After our string of victories there in the valley and at the Seven Days Battle and then at Manassas, England and France both were just on the verge of recognizing this. And we severely needed their naval support, just as the French had given George Washington their naval support to help win the first war of independence. I didn't realize they were that close. Oh, they were close, sir. 
So again, John Lee said, if we can push north and have a few victors there to give them the strength and confidence in it, they'll recognize it. Well, the third goal was to bring the war north to northern systems. The idea was to strengthen those peace Democrats. Remember, I talked about Congressman Vallandigham being one of the prominent ones. Mm-hmm. This is September of 62, so, and the midterm elections were coming up in November. And if enough of those peace Democrats would gain seats in the legislature or the Senate and override Lincoln's war coalition, we could achieve for peace and ended this war. So we wanted to bring the degradations of war to the North. I don't know if you want to say to frighten the citizens or to impress the citizens of what we were going through in the South. We also had some thoughts of liberating Maryland. Remember, Maryland had been placed under martial law. There were some thoughts that Maryland might have wanted to join the South. And, well, I can say that we weren't very successful in there. They, we didn't have a big enough force to occupy and free Maryland. So maybe that was a pie-in-the-sky idea. But we also wanted to come north to bring the Union Army out of the fortifications around Washington to fight on our choosing. Well, to do that, General, General Lee issued Order 191, that famous order that got lost accidentally by one of his couriers, and I don't write or copy orders and send them out to my subordinates, much to the chagrin of General Lee, unless I'm ordered to do so for that very reason. But in order to go north, our objective, our tactical objective, we were thinking about going to Harrisonburg, Pennsylvania, which was a great army detail. Not only did we need supplies. I mean, another reason we came north was because our Horses were hungry. Our men were hungry. We were out of shoes. We were looking for foraging supplies. So we moved into Frederick, Maryland, and that's where General Order 191 was given. Before we would go north, we had to clear out those remnants of Union people at the head of the Shenandoah Valley there at Harpers Ferry in Martinsburg, Virginia, to clean our lines of supply, communication, and withdrawal routes if it was needed. And so to do that, I was given command of about three-quarters of Lee's army. My corps, plus the independent commands of General McClaws and General Walker, I moved my troops on about a 70-mile end around and came down onto Martinsburg, scared the political General White there back into Harpers Ferry. And if you'd be around Harpers Ferry like I was and organizing the troops at the beginning of the war, you'd realize that's not a defensible position. The high ground at Maryland Heights, Loud Heights, and Bolivar Heights is like shooting down into the old adage of shooting fish in a barrel. So there on September the 15th, the largest army ever to surrender on American soil surrendered to my forces, 13,000 men, 13,000 small arms, 73 pieces of artillery, 1,200 mules, 200 wagons. But uncharacteristically, after Pope had returned to Washington there, McClellan had again been given command of the whole army. And uncharacteristically, McClellan was coming quickly after General Lee up in South Mountain. General Lee was thinking that he didn't understand that McClellan had never moved that quickly before. Well, we've now learned that copy, a copy of Order 191 had been lost and fallen in McClellan's hands. So General Lee had communicated with me that we might have to think about retreating down the valley but I told him I had completed my actions at Harper's Ferry and I could join him. And we joined him at Sharpsburg. Now, here we come again to those 
two names for battles. We call it the Battle of Sharpsburg. The Northerners called the Battle of Antietam. It ended up being the bloodiest day in American history. Anyhow, I joined General Lee there on September 16th, and I agreed with him that he had good defensible ground there around Sharpsburg. And one of our goals was to draw the Union Army out so we could take them on the battlefield of our choosing. The battle would begin on the morning of September 17th in my area in the northern, northwestern section of the battlefield. Along about noon, it would move to what was called, now being called the Bloody Lane. In the afternoon, it would come down to what is now being called Burnside Bridge. At the time, we called it the Lower Bridge. And this is an example you was talking about who was our most fierce opponent. What well, had to be Little Mac because of his organizational skills, but he was a hesitant, poor battlefield commander. Had he thrown his overwhelming force, they outnumbered us three to one in personnel. They outnumbered us two to one in cannon. And, and had he thrown his whole force into it, there was no way that we could have withstood the onslaught. But we had interior lines that, because of his piecemeal employment of his troops that General Lee was able to ship people from our right flank to our left flank to the center throughout the day. It came very close in the afternoon when Burnside finally got across that lower bridge and was rolling up General Longstreet's flank. I had left A.P. Hill back in, in Harpers Ferry to parole those 13,000 prisoners and get all those supplies headed south. When General Lee saw the need for him to rush that's 17 miles. So A.P. Hill did come on a forced march of 17 miles in the afternoon, rolled up Burnside's flank upon the battlefield. We stayed there the next day you know, waiting for McClellan to engage, but he did not want to engage General Lee. Again, I say it was the bloodiest day in American history. There was 23,000 casualties that day, 10,000 of them ours, 13,000 in the Union. Mr. Dean, I want to bring his attention because there's something that worries me very much. What's that? There's no way that anybody in their right mind can conclude that the Union forces won that series of battles. In three days, the Union Army had lost 26,000 men to our 10. They'd lost all the provisions, supplies of 13,000 of them. There's 73 pieces of artillery and everything. Yet here's the cunning of Mr. Lincoln. Two days after the battle, he declares Antinium to be a northern victory and issues his Emancipation Proclamation. And I that's going to have a political consequences further down the road. I think that England and France will be hesitant to recognize us now that Mr. Lincoln has finally made this a war about slavery. Had we known that he was going to do that, we would have not withdrawn. We did not retreat in the face of the enemy because we feared his defeat. General Lee just simply pointed out to us, hey, we've lost the element of surprise that we were first going to have. And we have fought a terrible battle over these few days. Let us withdraw back down the valley, reorganize, refit, and we'll come back north again at the time of our choosing. But I'm fearful now that Mr. Lincoln has finally decided that he's going to make this war about slavery. It was a war measure. What did that Emancipation Proclamation do? It didn't do a thing. He said he was going to free all the slaves that were in the states of rebellion. 
Did he free any of the slaves that were in the states under his control? No, he didn't free the slaves in Maryland. He didn't free the slaves in Kentucky and Missouri. In fact, at the beginning of the war, when General Fremont freed the slaves in New Orleans, he countermanded the order and made them be sent back to his masters. This man that called Lincoln is nothing more than a farce. He's a dictator, sir. I'm sorry. I'm no, not, not at all. On my high horse again. Not at all. You know, anyway, uh, one, sir. one of the questions that I had intended to ask you at some point in this conversation was how you feel about Lincoln. And I think if there is one thing that I'm crystal clear on, I, I think I am clear on that. But, uh, sir, I again, I am just so thankful for all of your time today. I appreciate you answering all these questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well, sir, I've been known to have a temple. And I thank my Heavenly Father for teaching me to control it. I would cer certainly like to end this on a positive note with our reference to our great Lord. I'd like to share with you my two favorite verses that I read daily. May I do that, sir? Yes, please. The first verse that I read daily is Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that all things work together for the good of them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. I follow that up by reading Revelations 1, 4, especially after these trying times that I am involved with every day. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, neither crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are all passed away. Mr. Dean, may our great Heavenly Father add his blessings to you, and may his will be done in this second war for our independence. Thank you so much. I wish you the best. When Jackson fights Joe Hooker a few days after this conversation at the Battle of Chancellorsville, the Confederate Army's assault will begin to lose steam. But as he did in nearly every battle, Jackson will find a weak point in the Union line and flank the enemy, changing the course of the battle. However, his relentless planning and scouting to find these advantages will also result in his death. While scouting at night and returning to his camp, he will come upon a line of his own men that will fire on Jackson before he can identify himself. He will be struck three times. Many of his men and his horses in his scouting party will be killed. Jackson might have lived from these wounds, but while being transported on a stretcher, he was dropped, and the impact exacerbated his injuries. His now famous left arm had to be amputated, and then he died of pneumonia. Upon hearing of the news, General Lee said, He has lost his left arm, but I have lost my right, and I am bleeding at the heart. Thomas Stonewall Jackson was so famous at this time that his left arm received its own burial. In fact, to this day, you can visit its gravestone that says, Arm of Stonewall Jackson, May 3rd, 1863. Thank you for enjoying these podcasts with me. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do that now. The next podcast is one of the most significant people in U.S. history, and you'll get a preview of that episode this Monday morning. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.